From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The higher-than-expected inflation figure announced on Wednesday has further elevated cost of living in the election campaign. The 5.1% annual rate has increased the prospect of the Reserve Bank increasing interest rates next week, rather than leaving its move until June. If that happens, it would be the first rate rise in a federal campaign since 2007, the election that John Howard lost. The inflation rate puts the issue of economic management to the fore, just where the government wants it to be. But it also produces questions of what will happen in future, to which the government really can't have very convincing answers. To talk through these issues, we have today independent economist Saul Esley, who is speaking to us from Zurich in Switzerland. So, Leslie, you've battled the jet lag to get across these numbers for us. In brief, why are they higher than expected? Well, the most obvious explanations are the increases in new dwelling construction costs, which is used in the Australian CPI as a proxy for housing costs for owner-occupiers. That was up 5.7% in the March quarter and by 13.7% from a year earlier. And the other was petrol prices that were up 11% in the March quarter and by 35% from the March quarter last year. Together, those two items, large as they were, only accounted for about 089 of the 2.1% increase in the CPI, and that's about 42% of the total. What also really stands out about these figures is just how broadly based the pickup in inflation has been over the past quarter. Uh, Just by way of illustrating that, on average over the last 10 years, in any given quarter, about 67 of the more than 100 components of the CPI have registered price increases, and typically about 37 register price decreases. In the March quarter, 91 of the slightly over 100 components in the CPI recorded price increases. That's the largest in at least 10 years. While only 16 items recorded price falls, that's the smallest in at least 10 years. Of the 91 components that showed price increases, 64 showed an increase of more than 1%, compared with an average of about 29 over the past 10 years. And 38 of the slightly over 100 items in the CPI showed price increases of more than 2%, which on average over the last 10 years, only about 14 items have done in a given quarter. So it's a broadly based acceleration in inflation, which is captured in the 3.7% increase over the past year in the Reserve Bank's preferred measure of what it calls underlying inflation. And I think this provides the evidence which the Reserve Bank has said it's been looking for, that inflation is sustainably within its 2 to 3% target band. Indeed, the risk is that it's now sustainably above the upper end of the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% inflation rate. And so far, the Reserve Bank has done nothing about that. 
Now, just before we come to the Reserve Bank, I might put a footnote in there that, of course, the increase in petrol is uh, coming before the recent cut in excise. So that cut in excise would be reflected in later figures. Oh, that's right. It will be, uh, there will probably be a negative from petrol prices in the June quarter when those figures come out in the last week of July. But what's of concern is that the increase in the CPI in the March quarter was driven by so many other factors other than petrol. And while many of those are, of course, internationally generated and uh, reflected in the CPI figures that we're seeing in a whole raft of overseas countries, as well as here, and there's nothing that any Australian government could really have done to prevent those. The fact that the rise in inflation is so broadly based is something that I think is of genuine concern. Now, do you think the Reserve Bank will move next week rather than leaving a, a move on rates to June? And are there any political factors involved in such a decision about timing? Obviously, the Reserve Bank is non-political independent, but really whatever it does has some political implication. Well, it certainly will have implications, whatever it does in the context of this election. Uh, You'll recall that in January 2007, the then governor of the Reserve Bank, Glenn Stevens, addressing suggestions that there was some kind of unwritten rule that the Reserve Bank kept its head down during election campaigns, said, and I'm paraphrasing, but only just that the Reserve Bank Board would be derelict in its duty to the Australian people if it thought that it should adjust interest rates in one direction or the other and didn't do so because there was an election around the corner. And of course, famously, during that election campaign, when inflation was last running at the levels which it is now running, uh, Glenn Stevens kept his word and raised interest rates, notwithstanding that the 2007 election was a matter of weeks away from the Reserve Bank making that decision. And I think the Reserve Bank is now finding itself, through no choice of its own, of course, in a very similar position that there is, I think, a clear justification for the Reserve Bank to be lifting interest rates. After all, that's what the central banks of the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, Canada and New Zealand, the countries with which we most directly compare ourselves on these things, have all done. In the case of Canada, the United Kingdom and New Zealand, the central banks there have done it three times since late last year. And the Federal Reserve, which has only raised US interest rates so far once, has made it clear that when it meets uh, two days after the Reserve Bank meets next week, it will probably have raised its equivalent of the cash rate by 50 basis points. That is uh, making for a total of 75 basis points. So if the Reserve Bank were to do nothing in the face of this much sharper than expected acceleration in inflation, it would be leaving itself open to a charge of acting in a political way, which would undermine its credibility for an extended period. So I think the Reserve Bank really has to raise interest rates at its meeting next week. And if they don't, then apart from any loss in credibility that might be associated with that, unless the governor is able to come up with a very persuasive explanation as to why they haven't raised rates, then the risk would be that at the next meeting in June, by which time, of course, the Reserve Bank will also 
either have the data on wage inflation that we still don't have and which it has said for some time it wants to see, uh, the Reserve Bank could be raising rates by 75 basis points in one hit, which would be a considerable shock to the uh, mortgage paying population in particular, but I think for small businesses and a whole lot of other participants in Australia's economy more broadly. Now, if it does next week, what size rise are we looking at? Well, the conventional wisdom had been that the first increase in interest rates would be 15 basis points to take it from the present rate of 10 to 25, after which the Reserve Bank would then act as it has done on most occasions over the last 25, 20 years in 25 basis point increments. But it now seems in the aftermath of this figure that the Reserve Bank may raise rates by 40 basis points next week, which would take the cash rate to half a percent, after which it would then move in 25 basis point increments most likely, if they choose only to go by 15 basis points at next week's meeting, assuming that they do that, then there would be, I think, a widespread expectation that at the June meeting, the Reserve Bank could raise rates by 50 basis points. Where do you think rates will be by the end of the year? Well, I certainly think they'll be above 1% and they could be at 1.5%. Almost certainly the cash rate will eventually get to somewhere between 2 and 2.5% by the second half of 2023. Now, that, of course, by historical standards is still very low interest rates. You'll recall that during the global financial crisis, the Reserve Bank lowered the cash rate to what it described at the time as an emergency level of 3.25%. But such has been the increase in household debt over the intervening dozen or so years that even a cash rate of around 2 to 2.5% would inflict a fair amount of pain on a meaningful proportion of Australian households, especially those who've taken out mortgages since interest rates reached their record low in November 2020. The bank over the last couple of years has had various positions in my memory on what it was likely to do. At one stage, it was saying no rise before, I think, 2024. Is that right? And I noticed that one economic writer today has criticised the bank, saying, and I quote, in striving for full employment, the central bank has let inflation run too far with no monetary response. Is that a fair criticism? I think it is up to a point. Uh, I thought it was a mistake on the part of the Reserve Bank to put a date on how long it would keep interest rates at record lows. I have no criticism of the Reserve Bank for cutting rates to where it did. And if the Reserve Bank had said, as almost every other central bank in the developed world had said, that rates were likely to be at record lows for a very long period of time, uh, then again, that would have been quite defensible. But as far as I know, the Reserve Bank of Australia was the only central bank in the developed world that actually marked a date on the calendar, as it were, for the first increase in interest rates. They didn't need to do that, in my view. And certainly other central banks didn't perceive a need to be as prescriptive as to how long rates would remain at record low levels. So the Reserve Bank has unintentionally, I'm sure, created for itself communications problems that other central banks haven't had to grapple with in deciding when to begin the task of raising interest rates. Now, I think the Reserve Bank was certainly right to point out that Australia 
hasn't experienced as sharp a rise in inflation as most other advanced economies. And that's still true today, despite the fact that the increase in inflation during the March quarter was bigger than anyone had expected. Australia's inflation rate of 5.1 is still lower than in New Zealand, Canada, the United States and the United Kingdom. And Australia also has a slightly looser inflation target than the central banks of those other economies. Our Reserve Bank's target is 2 to 3% over the medium term. Most other central banks in the developed world have inflation targets which are either 2% as a point or a range, a percentage point either side of 2%. So uh, the Reserve Bank had reasons, valid reasons for Uh, waiting longer than other central banks before raising rates and indicating that rates might not rise by as much here as in some other economies. But I think they, like many others, have been caught by surprise at just how quickly inflation has risen and how broadly based that rise in inflation has become. And I think that's the real challenge that they now have to deal with, is not so much that the number itself is higher than expected, but that it draws from a much broader range of price increases than anyone would have anticipated six to 12 months ago. In the context of these numbers, were the cash giveaways in the budget responsible given the pressures in the system? I think there is some doubt about that. It wasn't wrong for the government to seek to assist households in the lower parts of the income distribution, with very real pressures on their living standards arising from increases in the costs of things which represent a bigger proportion of the weekly spending of lower income households and over which they have absolutely no control. So I have no particular criticism of the payments to pensioners and other beneficiaries or in principle of uh, the low in, uh, the addition to the low and middle income tax offset. But other measures, in particular the cut in the fuel excise and perhaps the extension of the increase in the so-called Lamington, the low and middle income tax offset, to households earning as much as $100,000 a year was excessively generous and could have been offset as entities like the OECD advised by other measures that would seek to pay for those increases. I mean, after all, the budget is forecasting that household consumption expenditure will rise by five and three quarters percent in real terms in the 2022-23 financial year, which is, I think, the fastest growth in real household consumption spending in more than 40 years. We also know that in aggregate, households have accumulated an additional $250 billion in bank deposits since the onset of COVID-19. Now, That's of little comfort to households in the bottom third of the income distribution. But it would seem to me that unpleasant as it is for middle and upper income households to have to pay more to fill their petrol tank and to pay more at the supermarket for their groceries, households in the top half of the income distribution were pretty well placed to absorb these price increases without needing additional financial assistance from the government in ways that would stimulate the economy. I mean, in the same way, I think some blame can be sheeted home to the government for the outsized increase in new dwelling construction costs that's the biggest single contributor to the increase in inflation over the past year and in the March quarter. Yes, some of that reflects increases in the prices of imported or tradable components like steel and timber and finishings for bathrooms and so forth, but the government's in 
inflated first homeowner grants significantly added to demand pressures in the home building industry, as these measures always do. And we now have something like 60 years of history that bears that out. But the government's first homeowner grant scheme flew in the face of that history, and we're now paying a price for it. And of course, a lot of these measures were uh, not economically driven entirely or even primarily, but in some cases, very much uh, politically driven as well. Of course, as these things always are. Now, what about the impact of this uh, inflation rate for wages, which of course have been uh, flat for a long time? And how does this latest rate fit in with the budget wages forecast? Well, the Latest numbers certainly underscore the pressures facing households dependent on wages, particularly those in uh, lower wage households. And the most commonly used measure of wage inflation, the wage price index, excluding bonuses, rose 2.3% over the year to the December quarter. Uh, That figure when the March quarter numbers come out on the 18th of May, that's a few days before the election, that may be somewhere between 25 and 3%, with wage increases probably having picked up a bit during the March quarter. But that figure still falls well short, not only of the 5.1% headline inflation rate, but also, as I'm sure people will be eager to point out, the CPI for so-called essential items rose by 6.6% over the year to the March quarter. So the opposition will, I'm sure, certainly make much of the fact that even if wages growth surprises to the upside for the March quarter in the last week of the election campaign, wages will probably be growing at less than half the rate of increases in the prices of essential items that wage earning households buy. And the government can the government can rightly be accused of contributing to that outcome because its wages policies have contributed at margin to the stagnation in wages over the last five years. It's not solely their responsibility. Wage stagnation has been a factor in most Western economies over the last 20 to 25 years. uh, But we are seeing in the US, for example, wages rising at their fastest rate since the mid-1980s, still well behind the inflation rate, and the same is also true of the UK. But at least in those countries, wages are rising at closer to the underlying inflation rate than is the case in Australia. And you know, the government in, for example, its submissions to the Fair Work Commission's annual hearings on the minimum wage and in the wage policies it's adopted with regard to its own public sector employees can, I think, legitimately be said to have contributed to the stagnation in Australian wages more broadly. And I'm sure the opposition will be making that point between now and the election campaign, uh, election day. So how do you think this latest economic news will play politically? Will it help or harm the government in its economic argument? Well, I think it makes the government's economic arguments harder because... Part of, one of the issues in this election campaign is which party is best placed to deal with cost of living pressures facing households. And those cost of living pressures now appear to be significantly more difficult, greater than we had previously thought they'd be. And they may be further exacerbated by increases in mortgage rates if the Reserve Bank acts as I think it probably now should at next week's board meeting. Um, the coalition will almost certainly say that although the challenge now looks more difficult, 
they would say that underscores the importance of sticking with the party that is best capable of managing difficult economic times, which they in turn would argue is them. Uh, I've looked at this quite closely in another piece for John Menadieu's Pearls and Irritations last week, and I conclude that especially when you take into account factors that have occurred during different parties' times in office over which they have no control, but which have profoundly affected the way in which economic variables have behaved during their terms in office, and when you also take account of the fact that governments bequeath things from one term of office to their successes or inherent trends and the impact of policies from their predecessors, that neither side of politics can credibly claim to be better economic managers than the other. And any such claim ought to be viewed through the same prism that investors are invited to view claims made by fund managers in product disclosure statements that past performance is no guarantee of future returns. I think in an ideal world, what voters would be doing would be looking at what each side of politics is proposing to do about challenges such as the increased cost of living or stagnant wages and making up their own minds as to which set of policies seems more appropriate for the challenges we face and also coming to a conclusion about which set of personnel, treasurer, finance minister, shadow treasurer, shadow finance minister and the like, seems best equipped to implement the policies they're promising to adopt if they're elected to office and what people from the same political party might have done 25 or 30 years ago seems hardly relevant by comparison. Whether or not that's actually how people approach uh, their thinking about economic issues, it certainly won't be the way that either party frames it, but that's the way I would like to think that voters will come to whatever decision they do about who's best placed to manage the undoubtedly more difficult economic challenges that we now face uh, after the election. One of the problems is, of course, that we haven't really seen much in the way of solid programs for the future, have we? The R word for reform is not one that's on the lips of either side to any considerable degree. No, that's right. It's been a long time since the coalition has really sought a term in office based on a far-reaching economic reform agenda. Probably the last time they did that was uh, in 1998, when John Howard, having promised not to introduce GST in 1996, uh, went to the people with a mandate or seeking a mandate to introduce a GST, which he then very successfully did. Um, The Labor Party, having done a John Hewson, in the 2019 election and failed to win an election which everyone thought they would, has responded in the lead up to the 2022 election in the same way that John Howard did after the Liberals lost the unlosable election in 1993 by presenting a small target strategy. That may make political sense. We will know on the evening of the 21st of June, 21st of May or shortly thereafter, but I don't think it makes for good economic policy And um, and I think Australia's relatively poor economic performance over the last 
decade or so, especially if you strip out the favourable effects from very strong commodity prices over that period, Australia's relatively poor economic performance in, for example, terms of per capita or per productivity growth, is in part a reflection of the lack of reform ambition that both sides of politics are putting on full display during the current election campaign. Saul Eslake, thank you very much for talking with us today. It's going to be a a very interesting next Tuesday. And that's all for today's podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you might also like The Conversation's new election podcast, Below the Line, which is hosted by former ABC presenter John Fain. To listen and subscribe, search Below the Line on theconversation.com.au or on your favourite podcast app. Thank you very much to my producer, Ellen Duffy. We'll be back with further interviews soon. Meanwhile, goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.